0: Fruitcakes and Christmas. These two seem to go hand in hand. If you have not received a fruitcake, you've heard the jokes, seen them on tables in grocery stores, and know they are thought best avoided. So, what makes a fruitcake a good fruitcake? And yes... Few dissenters, they can be good, and why is it a Christmas tradition? Some interesting tidbits during the 1800s, fruitcake was banned. It was said to be too decadent, and that made it sinful. Later, those laws were repealed. Another one it was a custom in England for single wedding guests to place a slice of fruitcake the wedding cake, under the pillow so they'll dream about the person he or she will be marrying. And this one's fun, sort of. In Colorado, the annual tradition of the fruitcake toss is held in which participants use medieval devices such as a catapult, usually homemade, in a contest to see who can throw the fruitcake the furthest. So, let's go learn about fruitcakes. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 66. Hello and welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Point your browser to culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts to find all the episode links to all the shows and the show notes pages, including the cookie episode and the PDF book of some of my favorite Christmas cookie recipes. While you're on that page, you can click the various social media icons and follow me on those sites or follow the show in Eating Liberty, the group for the Culinary Libertarian Facebook page. From that same podcast's page, click the support hyperlink and you can help keep the show going with donations through Patreon, PayPal, or Bitcoin or purchase a coffee mug from my Crinkly Without Coffee Mug store, also linked on that page. You'll see some affiliate banners for the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom and for Brian McClanahan's McClanahan Academy, both sites offering excellent content in history and politics and economics that you didn't get in school. Just to be clear, McClanahan Academy is history. In case you thought it was all academic links, you can subscribe to Kiko's Cakes and learn how to make cakes and torts and desserts at home that look like they were purchased from a professional patisserie. While you are listening to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, rate and review it on your podcatcher. That simple act lets the podcatcher show more people the show, so they can become fans too. My guest today is Ken Abawa. Ken is a professor of history at the University of the Pacific in California and focuses on food history. Ken is the author of 25 books ranging from noodle soup to academic books about the culinary and cultural history of food. Ken is joining us today to talk about fruitcake, Ken, thank you very much for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Thanks for having me. So before we get into our Christmas topic, which is going to be fruitcake, and yes, yes, before you all turn off, this is going to be more interesting than you expect it to be. And for that reason, you need to stick around. Uh, Give us some of your background into either culinary or history and what's going on in your world.
1: Sure. Um, My name is Ken Albala. I'm a a professor of history at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. And um, I'm a food historian in the broad sense of that term, meaning that I study pretty much anything to do with food, um, provisioning um, people's attitudes toward toward food, their dietary ideas, their religious ideas, their um, serving modes. Uh, but also a culinary historian in the more narrow sense, in that I cook historic recipes um, and want to know how they were done and what they tasted like and um, recreate
0: them. Well, now the cooking historically sounds very interesting. So we're going to have to we may have to have you back to talk about that because I I think there's a a lot to mine there. There certainly is. Yes. <laughs> in in doing my own little quick research about fruitcake, because it was mentioned as an idea to me by one of my uh, former show guests. His name is Mark Volker. He talked to us about uh, gold and and investments and money and what money isn't. And I will have a link to his episode on today's show notes page, which is com slash 66 – As I'm digging into this idea of fruitcakes, thinking thinking I'm not going to get much, wow, that was not true at all. So do you have some sense of when when did fruitcake begin as sort of this thing? What was it originally? Well, the thing that we normally think of as a fruitcake, which is largely
1: fruit embedded in some kind of bready matrix, um, goes back really to ancient Egypt, if not before then. Um, if you look at these conical loaves that they made in Egypt, they often contain dates and honey and other sweeteners and you know where the definition of a cake divides from bread is the really difficult question there think there are fruit cakes now that are more bready than cake, but I think you know as long as we don't quibble about that distinction because they didn't put fat into their breads um there's there's fruit cakes going back to um, you know, several thousand years B.C. And not only, um, there's no recipes for them per se, but the equipment to make them, and sometimes the actual bread survived. Uh, they buried them with people in tombs. So um, we know that they were putting fruit in kinds of bread cakes um, from the very be- earliest civilizations.
0: And that's one of the things that I found. I didn't get as far back as Egypt, but some of the things that I was reading were talking about the ancient Romans and using it more like a uh, an energy bar.
1: Yeah, the Romans did have things like that. Um, they were they were uh, you know sort of the ancestors. They weren't very heavily spiced. We often think of fruitcakes as being you know laden with uh, so-called Christmas spices, meaning cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, ginger. Those would be um, medieval. Um, and and the, I think the panforte of Siena is a wonderful a surviving remnant of that era. It's really it just means strong bread um or pan pepato, which has got pepper in it also. Um, but the Romans had things sort of like that, but which they sweetened with um honey or um, grape must, um which is called sapa. It's kind of the ancestor of balsamic vinegar, but not sour. Uh, they didn't have really have sugar. So you know how you you what you consider to be a proper fruitcake I think people might say, "Well, the Romans really didn't have it quite yet, but they had something like that." Um, there are no explicit recipes. There, there are recipes that are um, kind of cake-like things. Some of them contain cheese. Sometimes they have, um, you know, grains mixed into into the uh, into flat sort of doughy sheets and things like that. Many cakes, and in fact, even sacrificial cakes are mentioned in um, Cato um, Cato's *Re Agricultura*, which is um, a book of, of Uh, farming manual basically Um, and there's a handful of sacrificial cakes in there which um, you know they're they're not quite fruit cakes but I think by the time you get to the middle ages they're definitely there.
0: One of the things that as I was talking to Mark about this and started thinking more carefully about this idea uh, on my blog I've got some different uh, posts about various spices uh, because that was interesting to me to sort of write about cinnamon but in reading about how these spices uh, came to be known around the world. There's a very interesting and a very violent history of spice trade, and so I, I think that getting spices in a thing I think adds a level of expense to the product. And dried fruit, uh, especially exotic dried fruit, fruit that doesn't grow where you are. So where now to us. Going to the store and buying and choosing from one of different seventy different boxes of a snack bar uh, in ancient Rome, you don't really have those choices, and is probably <laughs> yeah. something that's very expensive. Um, so, how is, is that? Is my conjecture correct? Yeah,
1: I mean the spices are an enormous factor in making fruit cake, and I would say so is sugar. You know, sugar is among those spices. And it depends on the period you're talking about, um, when they are expensive and valuable and markers of social status. Um, I think if you want to look at the, the height of sort of the spice trade, it goes from the late Middle Ages through about the 17th century. Um, and, you know, the uh, spices would have been brought from, well, let's let's take one example. Let's say cloves, which come from the Moluccas, which is in modern day Indonesia, they would have been carried from um, Ternate and Tidor or uh, Banda in the case of Nutmeg, from there all the way to Malacca, which is on the Malay Peninsula, from there all the way around to the um, Red Sea or to the um, and carried overland basically from the Gulf, from the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean, then picked up in places like Alexandria or Beirut and taken to Venice the Ven- by the Venetians and then transported from there to London, let's say, or to Germany or wherever. So the price is, is extraordinary by the time you get to, um, to anywhere in Europe. And, you know, there's, there's various reasons people use spices. Partly they're this marker of wealth. They're also a medicinal logic, as most of them are hot and dry and burning and act as a medicinal counter to uh, cold. So that's why they're used in, in wintertime. And um, and I think also they're, um, you know, they're they're just associated with exotic far-off places. Europeans really didn't know where they came from yet, um, not until the Portuguese actually get there directly in the 16th century. And what I find most fascinating about this whole history, and obviously, uh, you know, a a fruitcake, the fruits are, are not really expensive. It's the spices and the sugar that are the expensive part. But what's really interesting to me is that once this direct route by the Portuguese to uh, Goa and to uh, Malacca, and then even you know as far as uh, Macau and China, and eventually even Japan, the um, the goods are come in much larger volume. The the Portuguese are are interested not lowering the prices because obviously this is you know their their wealth, but once they they start coming in in much greater volumes. Um, they don't really act as a marker of wealth anymore. You know, once everyone can drive a Cadillac, it's no longer a big deal. Um, And they kind of lose their status. And by about the middle of the 17th century, they get marginalized into desserts. I mean, we would not think of sprinkling cinnamon and nutmeg on a chicken. Although you never know, maybe, you know, a company marketing, um, you know, pumpkin spice will eventually figure out a way to put it on everything. But, But that would have been pretty typical in the Middle Ages and even into the Renaissance period. You know, uh, cinnamon and sugar on your pasta or sprinkled on a chicken or on a roast is really pretty common. Um, but by the 17th century, those things, and, and sugar as well, get marginalized to desserts. You, you, you it don't doesn't sprinkle even sugar on your pasta. sound good to it, think about. It, it actually really does taste good. And, and this is this is part of why I like you know historic cooking is when you say this to someone, they think, wow, that can't make sense. And when you taste it, it actually makes complete sense. Um, I think you know you have to trust that people in the past knew what they were doing, and they put flavors together that might be uncommon today, but they are, um, but they're good. And and I think you know in the case of fruit cake is a is a perfect example of things that would I don't know whether they would seem incongruous, but they but they seem to be over the top. I mean you know you take your typical fruit cake which has got you know, just the barest amount of flour and butter, let's say, or some kind of fat. And then it's just loaded with a riot of fruits and a riot of spices, then it's often soaked in alcohol afterwards. And you think this is about to be over the top. But that's exactly what Christmas is about. You know, that's that's the you know, the flavor riot that you want when it's cold out. You want something that's fortifying and really strongly flavored. And and I think there's a there's a very good reason it's lasted this long. You know, at least in some form it's survived. The past uh, six centuries, let's say, um, is that despite people's maligning fruitcake, it actually does taste good. And you know, we shouldn't think of the you know the, the very bad versions that are out there. The well, some of them can be know,
0: fruitcakes, which can be dreadful. Um, let's go back for a second. I want to you you brought up something about the the sort of the derivatives, the panettone and the panforte and the stollen. But the, I was reading something, and I'm looking for my notes here, but I, the, at the at the end of the harvest, especially the nut harvest, uh, it seemed to be a tradition that some families or some communities would make a nut pound cake or nut fruit cake and save it till the spring of next year and then to eat it as sort of a... Uh, a good omen or or good blessings onto the next harvest. Yeah,
1: well, I don't know specifically about the details of that, but I think it is important to distinguish some of the things you just mentioned. Um a pan panettone is actually really a bread. I mean, it's it's got sugar in it and it's light and fluffy and it's it's um leavened like a bread with a natural um leavener but that won't last <laughs> for all year um i think what you're thinking and stolen also stolen will go will go stale <laughs> you know no pun um in um you know because it's got it's basically a bread that's sweetened and has eggs in it and some pieces of fruit but it's very light and and lovely and those those uh Panettone is like from the area of milan you know basically Um, But what you're thinking of is probably Panforte of Siena, which is a fruitcake, and it's flat and dense. And at least the claim is that this goes back to the Crusades, that they could carry this with them and it wouldn't go bad. And whether that's true or not, I think that the, you know, the preservative power or or the logic, let's say, of of preserving fruitcake is definitely there. If you dry the fruits, they're not going to go bad. If you add sugar, you're, again, stopping, you know, bacterial uh, contamination. And then, um, you know, you add nuts and you add uh, alcohol to this and, and stuff. And it, of course it's preservative. It's, you could last, you know, you can keep fruitcake indefinitely. And if you really don't like it, you just hand it over <laughs> to your relatives and get it back and forth every year. or just, you know, the ongoing joke about it. But I think that's the the original logic of fruitcake is that it's meant to um, preserve the fruits. Absolutely.
0: So how then Did it turn into a Christmas thing as opposed to an end of harvest thing?
1: Well, I don't think you'd be able to um, preserve the fruits at the end of harvest because, I I mean, I don't think you'd want to consume them then because let's think that you have, I don't know, um, figs and apricots and raisins and things like that, you're going to be making them uh, in the course of the summer when those things are ripe. And basically, you'll put them out in the sun and let them dry, or you'll candy them, which means you just keep cooking them down in sugar over and over. And some things, you know, that are really medieval still linger around like that, like Angelica, for example, which is a stalk. It's sort of like a celery stalk doesn't the, the commercial brands you can buy today are dreadful. And I think that's the, the little green squares that everyone gets terrified of when they, when they eat fruitcake, but it's, but it's candied, you know, in the same way that you'd candy cherries or you'd candy, uh, any kind of fruit, um, home fruit even. And, and I think that the, um, you know, so this is not something that you would make, you would consume at harvest. You'd candy those things and dry the fruits and everything. Then you'd make the, the, um, cake and, you know, Ideally, you keep it for a long time. The flavor improves. Um, you know, they, the flavors meld, the spices permeate the whole thing. And if you're dowsing with, with alcohol, it gets mm-hmm. this, um, you know, wonderful aroma and perfume of whatever, whatever you're adding to it. Um, so, so it's not something you consume right after the harvest, you, ideally Christmas or maybe even, you know, in the course of the, the whole following year.
0: As I was reading through, uh, looking into, I, I ran the idea of feeding your fruitcake was a really fun thing to find. And this was on the Swiss Colonies website. And I'll put a link to that on the show notes page. But they're talking about feeding it with alcohol to keep one, to keep it moist and <laughs> to keep it, <laughs> at least you keep you entertained. But, um, that's something I've never heard of before. Now I know that uh, we've made stolen uh, when I worked at a restaurant in Tallahassee, and we soaked our already dried fruits, and I can't remember. I'm going to guess it was a combination of probably grenadine and brandy and rum, um, and let them sit there for a good month before we put them into the stolen. And it, I mean, it's you know it's not kid bread, but it was really good. So th- yeah, this just. Well, this
1: is like the feeding that this fruit cake is a little different because you actually wrap it in cloth and you you just douse it, you know and every I think it's every few weeks you 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 know add a little more alcohol to it and it absorbs. and the logic is that this the, the thing is not going to dry out um, and that it will absorb and mix into the fruit and the cake and everything. Um, and so uh, usually it's brandy um, or sometimes port or things like that. and the other the other thing to to remember, is that these are very closely related to fruit puddings also. So something that we just don't have in the United States is this tradition of um, steamed puddings, like a figgy pudding or a, a plum pudding or the um, you know, things that, that are also associated with Christmas. But it's basically the exact same thing. I want you to imagine like suet and sugar and a lot of fruit wrapped up in a cloth and then put into a bowl or a or a steamer, and then steamed in the exact same procedure, but not baked. In other words, a fruit cake is just the baked version of this, which dries out if you don't do, if you don't keep adding alcohol. The steam version is light and fluffy. And of course, you know it's the Christmas pud that you you set on fire mm. with
0: alcohol, but they're very close relatives. Well, you know everybody who's old enough to remember Pink Floyd knows the end of the song of you know how can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? Now <laughs> Americans hear <laughs> that exactly right. and we <laughs> think Jell-O <laughs> brand pudding don't really understand that. no, no. To no, no. the English. That's not what pudding is. And I was reading on a website, and I've lost the name of it, but there was a suggestion that the figgy pudding in the song We Wish You a Merry Christmas is referencing that plum pudding that would have been so popular among the English at the time and something that I think Americans – Probably, and judging on uh, the reaction of my two kids and my wife, I think most Americans aren't too keen on a plum pudding because it's it's denser and richer and yeah, sweeter well, than they expect it to be.
1: Well, to clarify, the the word pudding is used in many parts of Britain just to mean dessert. They don't; the dessert is just not a. It sounds sort of. Um, pretentious to say dessert because it's a French word. Um, so pudding, if you're in working, you know, working class, and especially for Northern Britain, this Britain, means dessert. But in, in a more specific sense, it means something that's in a casing that's cooked. So think of haggis as a pudding. You know, it can have meat in it. A sausage is essentially a pudding. It's something that's in the gut of an animal or in an intestine. Um, uh, when that is why they say black pudding when they refer to you know blood sausages so so it's a it's a completely generic term it's something very specific but it has nothing to do with the pudding that we think of as you know j- chocolate pudding and vanilla pudding until maybe the 18th century they start applying that term to it um but but that's a totally different branch of what it what it would be, have been the original pudding is um is the fruits and the uh you know in in a suet and flour mixture and then steamed and it's actually really interesting i mean it's it's not heavy at all it's actually much lighter than fruitcake oddly enough um, and you know the other confusion is that meat can go in them you know when we think of mince meat today we think of like fruits in this sort of you know syrupy goo uh, but it definitely the original ones included meat in there as well and suet Food. Right, right. Well, it's beef fat instead of butter. So it's not really, you know, that different in, in the end. And, the, and in fact, I have to say yesterday, I made a suet crust on a pie, which is basic, basically like a mincemeat. And it's so it's lovely. It's just so much more flaky and flavorful. It actually and, sounds good. Um, it's just something we don't do in this country. I'm not sure why, but um, there it is. <laughs> well, if you don't know, I
0: don't know who does.
1: Yeah, I don't know why we, why it's it's gone out of fashion. I think, um, you know, it's, we certainly have a cattle industry. Oh, We have plenty of fat to go around, um, and I'm not really sure, you know, apart from industrial uses, what they do with it, um, you know, or, and they put it in bird feeders. But, you know, apart from that, we just don't really cook with suet. It's, it's just beginning to appear in, like, restaurants. And um, for reasons that I don't really understand, my grocery store now carries suet, you know, so it's just – which is fine, but I don't. Um, I don't really know why that's happened.
0: I, I'm going to. Uh, I'm. This is 100 percent conjecture. For anybody who wants to know, I'm going to blame the government and lobbying. Uh, this uh, is a, this is an <laughs> FDA USDA problem. Back when Ansel Keys did his faulty study about diet and oh my gosh we need to get rid of this because i think there probably right. was a time when it was very when it was very very popular well i, can, I, can, I can
1: tell you your suspicion is correct in insofar as lard was very very consciously attacked by the people who make um oleomargarine and eventually the things that that we know for a fact now <laughs> now that, tra- you know, trans fats are really, really bad for you, but they were marketed as being, you know, the great replacement and who wants to eat lard, which is going to make you fat, but eat this. Fat is fat, you know, and you're absolutely right to point to Ansel Keys as, as the origin of, uh, you know, the Mediterranean diet and this idea that if you have unsaturated fat and olive oil and margarine, that's going to be good for your heart, whereas, you know, beef suet and lard and all these other things, which we have tons of anyway, are... Um, are bad for you. That was definitely a government-driven um, policy, and of course, the the doctors who made came up with this idea were completely and utterly wrong about margarine. You
0: know. <laughs> and, and many things, and that I've actually got a couple of episodes about those general things. One of them is the food pyramid, but yeah, of um, course, that, that could be that that is an entirely different rabbit hole, yes, it is. It is,
1: but it's but you know, I think how it bears upon the topic of fruitcake is a classic fruitcake does have animal fat in it, um, and the flavor is different, it's more deep, it's more, um. Meaty, to lack to, you know, to, for lack of a better word, um, not that butter isn't wonderful, but butter is also, uh, you know, an animal fat, you know, and it's saturated, but, um, but it's kind of a shame that we don't use suet.
0: Hmm. We're gonna have to do some talking. I'm gonna figure this out because this sounds interesting. But, um, w- one of the things that, and I knew this from just being a, a cake maker and a recipe reader that. And um, I'm, I'm not sure when, I'm going to guess, maybe the 1800s, the English turned the fruitcake into a wedding cake, um, or at least a cake for uh, grand festivals and celebrations. But the reason the fruitcake stands out to me is because it was covered in fondant. And <laughs> that was what I was looking for, was information about fondant. But now these two things are going together. So fondant is... Both visually attractive, or, or personally, I think it's just terrible. But it it serves the very useful function of holding the stuff in, including the moisture.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know where our idea of a wedding cake developed as this, you know, white, light, fluffy thing with buttercream, and I, I despise those kind of cakes. Um, you know, it's the last thing on earth I ever want to eat. Um, a fruitcake, and, and, and again, I don't know exactly why it became the tradition in Britain for weddings. Um, sometimes they'll actually have a bride's cake and a groom's cake, and the groom's cake is often smaller and fruit rather than and darker. Um, and the other thing that I think is maybe worth mentioning is that there's two very fundamentally different kinds of fruitcake. One is the older, denser, mostly fruit or set in a light kind of eggy, uh, bready cake. The other one has got molasses in it. I think that's another very interesting part of this whole story that we haven't looked at. The molasses is, a, of course, a byproduct of the whole sugar industry. And getting rid of molasses, figuring out ways to put it into cakes and um, you know confections and make candy out of it and do things like that. I think that's where the, the dark brooding fruitcake that we think of comes from. Um, in Britain, they didn't use molasses as much as treacle, and treacle is a little different. It's really right. descendant of medicine. It comes; the word itself comes from theriac, which means a, um, a sort of all-purpose drug that was supposed to have been invented by Mithridates, who was an ancient king who took a little bit of poison every day so he could build up a tolerance. So when the day came that he would be poisoned, you know, by an enemy, he'd be able to to, to live through it, and. Um, <laughs> That, that recipe for Theriac, which was dozens of different exotic herbs and spices and things, um, came down all the way through. And the word in English becomes treacle, um, which is dark, you know, sort of. Uh, I don't actually know how they make treacle now. It's not the same as molasses. It's similar in that it's bitter and dark. Um, and it gives, you know, the, the ideal fruitcake its really dark um
0: uh, deep flavor, um, which I, which I find really fabulous. I do too. And I, I like molasses. Now my grandfather, uh, in Detroit was a streetcar conductor. Uh, and so that was during the depression and, and he was known, my mother remembers seeing him eat molasses sandwiches. Wow. Now, <laughs> so I tried them now. So molasses is bitter And not everyone likes bitter. One of the things I discovered uh, as a wine taster was that, uh, in my crude calculations, about 75% of people can't detect bitter, which I thought was interesting. Let's take a moment out for a word from one of my affiliates. Folks, with Christmas just days away, digital gifts can be the perfect last Minute gift. For the readers in your life, send the gift of audiobooks. You can also get yourself the gift of audiobooks, which is like giving the gift of time. You can listen to popular books such as We Were the Lucky Ones by Georgia Hunter or I Am Watching You by Teresa Driscoll. Try Audible for one month and get one free audiobook and two Audible Originals. When the trial ends, continue to buy one audiobook and two Audible Originals each month. Cancel online before the free trial ends and own nothing and keep the audiobook. Check out my page, culinarylibertarian.com audible for more information and the link to sign up and also a link to Ken's Audible book, that he wrote about bourbon. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash audible to start saving time and reading more books. That's culinarylibertarian.com com slash audible. Now let's get back to the show. Wow! I don't know if that's true or not, I, but it right to me. But I I do know that there are people
1: who have much much more acute senses of taste, what are called super tasters which means that they don't like bitter. They bitter Anything that's bitter, even coffee or, um, or uh, you know, green vegetables, uh, presumably taste so incredibly horribly bitter to them that they can't eat them, whereas other people genetically just don't have that uh, marker or have fewer taste buds or whatever it is. And, of course, bitter is one of those things that you are born not liking and then you develop a, you know, you can eventually learn to like coffee and, you know, uh, tannic wines and things that are, you know, very bitter chocolate um, because you lose taste buds as you get older. So I think maybe, you know, the the whole fruitcake thing and the, and the bitterness that comes from the molasses, maybe that as you get older, your taste buds are less acute and you like it more. Maybe it's one of those things that younger people just find weird and, and bizarre cuz it's got such a riot of flavors and and a good a good fruit cake now that you're mentioning it really does have a note of bitterness in it
0: now this is just a curious uh, question do you suppose that that fruit cake with molasses allowed to sit and age and quite possibly even ferment a little bit the qualities of the molasses in that process are changing, kind of like the qualities of a wine change over time.
1: Well, I think it definitely does change, but it's definitely not fermenting. Um, The fermentation would be stopped by the sugar in there and the fruits themselves are preserved. And the last thing you want it to do is start having bacterial growth. But but no, the alcohol is going to kill all the bacteria and microbes and things. It's not, no, it's good not point. a living ferment, but I think it will mellow in a way that, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, alcohol, we don't think of alcohol really as aging, but if it's in contact with wood, of course, it's going to draw out the flavors of that, like cognac or bourbon or something is going to draw out the flavors. And I think that on some level, you're right, that the, the alcohol as you pour it in is going to react and certainly seep into the fruit, but, but also change its flavor in a way that is, um, it's not just sweetness. It becomes this little notes of bitterness and of, you know, uh, deep caramel notes and, you know, thinking thinking of wine and how it changes over time. Of course, a good fruit cake does exactly the same thing.
0: So we mentioned, or you mentioned, the fruit cake, and everyone has seen it. It has that. Just hideously glow-in-the-dark red and green uh, fruit, which you've identified as Angelica, and everyone hates it. And and now I don't mean to besmirch the company that makes it, but I personally care not for that version. But the dark, uh, almost sticky. Molassesy fruit fruitcakes, those things, well, no, that's a thing that I can get behind.
1: Yeah, well, you know, all, this discussion is actually making me want to make a fruitcake right now. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm going through the catalog of ingredients, and I'm pretty sure I have everything in the cabinet right now to make one. Um, I even have some bourbon to soak it with. But I, th- I think all when, right. you, when you're thinking about fruitcake, it's all a matter of the quality of ingredients. So if you spend a couple of dollars on a fruitcake, you can expect that what's going to be in there is bad tasting and i think if you taste the ingredients first that go in and you say oh this tastes a little weird as as i know for a fact the angelica in my cabinet is bad um or if you're using jarred you know maraschino cherries of course that's what they're going to taste like when they come out is terrible yeah. so so i think you know find the best um candied and dried fruits that you can um i i have found that um, like for example if you're using cherries use like a luxardo cherry which is which is <laughs> or, or, or really yeah. mas, you know, you know, which is, is a totally different creature. Um, and, you know, the, the quality of the fruit that you put in is going to ultimately determine the quality of the cake that comes out. I, I did this once. This, I'm, I'm going back now 30 years, but I was working at the New York Academy of Medicine, oddly enough, um, on food topics, on, on reading dietary manuals and things. It's where I did my dissertation work. And for some reason, I got it in my head to make everyone um, who worked in the library a fruitcake, or at least in the rare book room at the time. And I must have made a dozen or so. I may- maybe brought four or five for the people, you know, who are the librarians who were there. And I didn't follow a recipe. I just kind of threw things together, um, really good fruit. I- I'm guessing that they probably cost about $15, $20 of each as I made them because I just bought really good dried fruit, um, in New York. I was, this is New York, obviously. And, um, I've never been able to replicate that again. Oh man. I just threw in the ingredients and there was, you know, a little bit of leavener and it was soaked with whatever alcohol. I, I don't even remember what I found, but, um, but I'm pretty, I'm tempted right now to try after we're done talking.
0: Well, my, my daughter last year, and we didn't, uh, act, hastily enough to get it done, wanted to make a fruitcake and insisted on getting that candied fruit stuff from the grocery store, which we still have, and I'm sure is just fine. But as as we're talking and I'm thinking about this, I think I'm going to uh, – we'll continue our project, but I'm going to change my strategy, uh, and I've got plenty of quality dried fruits here with natural colors and nothing nothing that glows in the dark or, uh, you know, makes the Geiger kind of go off. And I think we're going to do this the right way because I'm interested in doing it. But if we're going to make it, we ought to make something that we want to eat. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And, and, you know, as in anything with cooking,
1: the quality of ingredients you put in will determine the end result. And if you have to doctor it up, then it's not, you know – it's never going to be that great
0: if you start with bad ingredients. Right. Well, that's, that is in, in most crafts, that's true. But what I know the most about is cooking. And that is absolutely the case. All right. I want to switch gears here a little bit, since this is the culinary libertarian show, I want to ask you uh, just a series of short answer, kind of interesting and fun questions uh, of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, Sour and umami, which one do you enjoy the most? That's the
1: hardest question
0: I've ever been asked. Um, I would
1: have said um, sour up until fairly recently, partly because I just love, um, I don't know, I could put lime on almost anything. Um, I I, I just, sour things are are my favorites, um, obviously. But I think in recent years, I've been spending a lot more time on umami and thinking about the thing, the ingredients that that make it. Um, specifically, katsuobushi, which is you know the iosinates are a little different than than, um, than the glutamates, but they work together. So one you get from kombu, the other you get from fish, but basically they give you this bomb of of umami. And I so I've been working on this for oh, I would say about four or five years. Um, and in fact, I did an article oh, it's a long, long story, which I won't tell you, but I was on a Japanese TV show learning how to make katsuobushi, and I told that story in an article that came out in gastronomica in the current issue actually um, so I would say um, I'm an umami person um, foremost, and I like playing with seaweed and uh, tomatoes and parmesan and beef and things, putting them together in, in odd ways that um, that accentuate this and and I have to say that uh, running counter to most gastronomic opinion now, which has turned in favor of MSG, you know, I mean, you find cooks, gosh, it was um, Bon Appetit, included a recipe that threw MSG in the tomato sauce. It was very recently. I think it must have been Carla Music. But um but I think MSG is different. It's one note, it's one chemical, it's, it's totally a, a cartoon version of real umami. And I think if you start throwing it into things, you're gonna find that your taste buds get blown out. It's, it happens when you eat Doritos, right? When you, you taste the MSG and then suddenly nothing else has flavor and you try and eat a carrot. It's like, oh, this is boring. I need to throw more some MSG on it. But I think it's very different when you get it from natural sources, not because it's a different chemical, it's, it's the same chemical, Um, Although they do add a sodium uh, atom into the the glutamates to get it in stable form. Um, But I think when you get it from natural sources, it's combined with all sorts of other flavors so that it does. It's a far more complex thing. It's like it's like, you know, one note compared to a whole orchestral suite of sounds um it's like a jolly rancher apple flavor compared to a real apple you know there there's some weird things similar to them but the one chemical note is much simpler and much much less complex and and then the other thing which which i think adds to this whole question is that um flavor is not just five th- five notes in fact that's what's happening on your tongue what goes on in flavor happens in your nose with volatile chemicals and it happens largely in your brain, right? I mean, what we think is happening is the, the simple taste, you know, the five tastes, the aromas, the mouthfeel, because obviously, you know, fats and crunchy things, things that are spicy, that's, that's not included as a flavor. But that's, a, that's a, a, you know, a tactile effect on your tongue and in your mouth and then the rest of your system. So that – and temperature. So there's so many different variables that go into taste, that I think we, um, we as gastronomers, do ourselves a disservice when we don't go to the level that, say, wine tasters do. You know, a wine taster will talk about mouthfeel. Um, they'll talk about viscosity and the legs or the, you know, so they they have a much more... Um, rich way of describing what's going on in their mouths. And I think that's why wine tasting is miles ahead of um, astronomy. And I think when, when we're thinking, you know, obviously scientists do this, but I'm talking about the general public. When we're talking about food, we go, hmm, tasty, ooh, spicy, mm, nice and sour, whatever. But I think we need a much deeper um, critical vocabulary. That, and, and whether that would be, I don't know, being able to um, – identify guanylate and amylase and all these chemicals, I don't know whether that's that's the, the the way to go, but I think we need some some more greater scientific input into what goes on in our mouth. And I'm just saying, oh, umami is too simple, uh, or it's too, um, it, it doesn't capture the depth of what's really happening in your mouth. That was a <laughs> long answer to a very short question. <laughs>
0: I, I think that you're right, but I'll, I I think if for no other reason it's 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 for brevity, <laughs> <laughs> right? But you know, wine tasters are never brief. <laughs> no, but that's there. I guess perhaps the specialization of wine alone allows the extended conversation about what's going on. As opposed to yeah, between yeah, having Doritos or a carrot or a Snickers bar or a Jolly Rancher or an apple or a pear, I think I, I'm 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 thinking that some people just don't want to have that conversation. But I, I understand. I like what you're saying. Oh, I think that's an interesting. Uh, but just imagine if
1: people did. I mean, imagine if you know confronting an apple we could get really detailed about what makes a good apple. I think that the producers would be a lot more finely tuned into what consumers want. We would get more pleasure out of eating because we'd have this deep way of talking about it rather than just saying, oh, these are good, they're crunchy.
0: (laughs) No, I agree with you. I think that, being, you know, my... You you are on the same coast I'm on, but I don't think that I've had the same problem in Florida and in Michigan and in New Jersey that at the grocery store, there's a dozen versions of the same insipid. Yes, of course, especially with apples, you know, um,
1: they're, they're trying to get around this. And, and I think the, uh, you know, the industry has for a long time been making fruit that will ship and that looks nice. And I think as consumers, we have to get over the fact that what looks the nicest doesn't always taste the best. Um, You know, and sometimes something, I mean, apart from the fact that we waste so much food and throw it away because it's got blemishes on it, which is a crime, I think that if we were more discerning in our palates, we would make better consumers and the industry would be able to... Step up to the plate and give us what we want. When you know the things that are sold are really not sold for flavor; they're they're not engineered for that. Um, with apples, I guess you know the uh, the the what is it called the, the Cosmo? I can't remember when Cosmo Press like University's been working on this, you know. And apples are are probably the best example of this because they are now selling a super apple that's supposed to be wonderfully flavored and everything they put tons of money into research and into marketing and that apple i bet you is going to cost twice as much as you know the um as the other conventional ones but but i would say you know it's funny you meant i don't know how we got onto the topic of apples and, and mentioning new jersey but i grew up in new jersey um amidst some beautiful apple orchards um in monmouth county and actually just a few miles from where they made um laird's Applejack, you know it's a scobyville bolt's Neck, that area and and i think i remember apples being just so wonderful being like the most exciting fruit because you could pick them right off the tree there uh, and the varieties that they had you know these were maccoons and empires and uh, macintosh that would that had great crispness and, and sourness and the the skins were were interesting I guess those things didn't ship, or I guess maybe I don't know. My <laughs> maybe my taste buds have dulled, but you know we went through a long period when when you know the stuff you could find in the supermarket was almost always um, red delicious and maybe some tired uh, you know wine sap or macintosh, but. And maybe this is just a function of flavor in general, that, that when you remember something, you know, in a Proustian kind of sense, you you embellish <laughs> its virtues and then, you know, think, oh, my God, the stuff that always that you could buy in the supermarket is terrible. But I think it has been for a long time. Um, and especially… You know, i'm gonna I'm gonna malign my own state now, but there's a lot of stuff that's sent out of California that just is made to ship it's and and it's because people want things out of season and they want things to be bright and red and they want it to appear and you know the grocers want it to show up on the shelf and look nice, but flavor has not been a consideration. and you know uh, what what other I guess the the best other example I could give would be tomatoes. Uh, the tomatoes, I'm sorry, that come out of Florida are awful. The tomatoes that we grow here in California, they can be good for a short window, but the stuff that they ship out of state is just, you know, it's picked on ripe and it's gassed with ethylene. It's, it's just not that flavorful. But the memory I have of a New Jersey tomato is <laughs> just, you know, in, un, incomparable. You know, they they, they were you know, flavorful. If you looked at them the wrong way, they'd bruise and fall apart.
0: But, but those were, those were gorgeous tomatoes. I, I grew up uh, in Michigan, but spent my, most of my childhood in Northern lower Michigan uh, on the Lelona Peninsula or near there. And we could go, we could go like you did in New Jersey. We could go pick apples and we could pick apples that you've never heard of, would never ever see in a store, But would (laughs) you would never find that kind of flavor in a grocery store apple. And it's only gotten worse. And I'm convinced somewhere along the line, since about 83 till like 10 years ago, somebody has changed the Granny Smith apple to be more tart. Because it used to be complex. Now it's just full on salt of tart and crunch. And that's it.
1: I think you're right. I, I definitely noticed the same thing. Um, it's the apple that I usually go to for baking pies now because it's got really good acidity and crunch. But that's it. It's
0: one note. You're right. You know, it used to be more complex, and it used to be a thing to enjoy. Now it's a thing. I don't. I avoid them. So interesting. Very interesting. What is your favorite food?
1: Oh gosh. Well, I go through phases. I'm I'm one of those people who, when I uh, sort of interested in something i go for the total deep dive and learn everything i possibly can so i've gone through periods uh you know i was writing a book on beans i eat beans every meal for several years um i did recently a book on noodle soup and that took several years also every single morning making a different noodle soup and got got it you know i think i got it down pretty much every noodle soup on earth um And right now I'm working on Aspic and I'm still not sure what I think about Aspic because it terrifies me as much as fascinates me. Um, And uh, I don't always like the things that I make. So sometimes I'll put something together and it'll look beautiful and I post it on Facebook and, you know, people like it. But in the end, sometimes I don't really want to eat it. So, so those are not going in the book, but, but it's not, I think it's very different. I, I, you know can genuinely say with very few exceptions there's not a noodle soup i don't love um and i've gotten really really good at making it um but aspics i still have a long way to go so i'm so i'm not going to say it's my favorite food uh, right now but um but it may become so um i've only been doing this since the summer so it's only been a few months but what is your least favorite food after aspic um I, do, I actually, I think I am born with a great disadvantage on earth because I like everything. Like there's there's actually no type of food I won't put in my mouth uh, happily and enjoy. But there are a few things that I think are, I would rather not eat because they're usually pretty bad. I think mussels are on the top of my list um, because when you get a good mussel, it's wonderful. And, I, and as, a, as a food, I love them. Uh, but so often, mussels are just kind of skanky. And <laughs> I just don't, I've tasted so many bad mussels that it's something I just don't really want to eat. Um, and I would say also, likewise with oysters. Um, when oysters are good, they are probably, for the top of my favorite foods, really good um, mussels from New England um, or Chincoteague's or from, from the Chesapeake Bay. The mussels in California, uh, the oysters in California, I think are terrible. They're They're like just, they don't, I don't know there's something they're too big and they're chewy and they're kind of bitter and nasty. I don't know those, those I don't like. And the other thing I know this is I'm answering this more than I need to, but, um, but I go, I have this weird relationship with coffee. I want to love it so badly that when I see a coffee shop or even someone's talking about coffee, I'll go out immediately and find coffee, but I don't drink it on a regular basis. I don't really like it that much. Um, You know, it's just just one of those things. I'm a tea drinker. so And I think coffee just leaves this dreadful flavor in your mouth afterwards. And maybe maybe that's my real aversion. It's not the flavor itself, um, because I like coffee and other things, but it's the aftertaste. And I suppose that's why I don't really like raw onions either. It's the the aftertaste.
0: What gets you excited? Uh,
1: What gets me excited um, is cooking, (laughs) being in the kitchen, uh, throwing things together, having fun, inventing something new, discovering a new technique. Um, trying out something that I would never have done before. That is so exciting to me. Um, the other day I was, I had this idea and I'm not, not sure where it came from, but I was, I think I must've heard someone talking about the feast of seven fishes. You know, where you put seven yeah. fish together. On a Coming up. Christmas thing. Yep. Exactly. For an Italian American households. So they don't really do it in Italy. I'm not sure why it's an American thing, but um, so I decided to make an aspect out of these and I, Got some tuna and some trout and uh, dried scallops, pickled herring, anchovies. um, I think there was salmon in there. Anyway, there were seven of these things. And arranged them nicely in a bowl and poured over some rosé with gelatin. So I got a kind of aspic out of this. And um, it was really good. (laughs) That worked. I put it on a bed of lettuce and then, you know, put some dressing around it. And that was some, that was fun. Uh, What turned you off? Oh, gosh. Um, People telling me what to eat and saying that I shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z, or this is bad for you, or this, you shouldn't eat that animal or do, you know, because obviously my priority is flavor, you know, everything on earth, there will be ethical reasons not to eat, including you know, the carrots that are picked by people who are paid bad wages. So I, So what turns me off is when other people um, diss your, your, what you're about to eat or have complaints or whatever. And not that those questions don't interest me. They do. And I think we should think about them. But ultimately, I think, um, you know, let people enjoy what they eat <laughs> and don't, don't criticize it. You know? Fair enough. I agree. What sound do you love? Which sound? Um, the bassoon. <laughs> <What> <laughs> the sound? I don't know how to play it, but, but if I had to play a, a double reed instrument, it was ridiculously expensive and difficult to play. The bassoon is just, I don't know why it thrills me. You know that lovely passage in The Messiah where there's the, there's a bass line that just goes. You know?
0: I love it. It's a good line. What sound do you hate? Leaf flowers. <laughs> <laughs> that's it They're the most annoying
1: sound on earth and you know people do it in fact the guy next door um you know hired a someone to do their lawn and they blow the leaves onto my lawn so this so the next door looks fine my lawn right sitting right in front of me is covered in leaves because they blew them from over there
0: tries to drum up business yep what's your favorite food indulgence Favorite food indulgence. And I guess that excludes
1: alcohol, but um, I really love potato chips. I don't know why. There's something – they're just the perfect food, you know, the crunch, the, the saltiness, the – yeah, of salt and
0: vinegar potato chips. God, those – food doesn't get better than that. <laughs> there was uh, – this actually the second time that potato chips has been the answer. The biochemist – and I forgot the brand name, but there's this particular potato chip he gets in his part of Pennsylvania – And he knows it's full of, you know, bad seed or grain oil and all sorts of chemistry on the outside. But he doesn't care. It's just that good. So I understand. All right. So um, how can people find you and follow you on social media? And what book recommendations do you have, either your own about noodles or about food history?
1: Gosh, well, I can um, be found pretty much anywhere. I have a blog um, I put most of every most of my activities on Facebook, um, but I've also got an Instagram account and a Twitter account, and um, and you. But I, you can find me anywhere. Just Google me, um, <laughs> and if you are interested in the books that I've done, um, I've got either uh, written or edited twenty five. So, um, depends so much you're looking, looking for. You know, if you want an academic food history. I've got those. I have a few cookbooks. I have some reference works. I have an anthology, a translation of a sixteenth century French cookbook. I mean, there's there's a lot of different stuff out there. Just go on Amazon. It's the easiest place to find it.
0: Well, what I can do is I'm sure Amazon has a nice tool of just aggregating all of the author's things, and I'll find their page and put that on the show notes page, corner libertarian.com slash sixty-six. Uh, and I will find at least your Facebook page, so people can at least follow you and find out what's going on.
1: So, hey, well, it's mostly aspects lately, but that's that's what I'm doing.
0: So the people don't know that uh, Peter Reinhardt, who was a guest on the show a couple of times, uh, I asked him this morning, <laughs> just on a whim, hey, who do you know who could talk about fruitcake? He said, well, you holy can. And within an hour, you said, hey, I'm free, so. I'm, I'm thrilled that you made time for me today to talk about free sure. cake, even though we, you know, we, we've had some, uh, some 2019 problems, but we fixed them all. And it was been a thrill. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been fun. Have a great rest of the week a Happy Christmas. You too. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I want to speak to you who have downloaded the cookie PDF from a couple of episodes ago i have a few tweaks that i want to tell you about for the liz's pecan rum balls i have found that 18 minutes is the best baking time for the chocolate shortbreads a couple of things first i think the best success is going to come from making the cookie roll about two inches in diameter they spread a bit more than i remembered and a smaller diameter is going to yield more cookies. Also, if you don't want to buy demerara sugar, you can use granulated white. You can use um, light brown, dark brown. You don't need to buy another sugar. Uh, it does have the the nice effect of being bigger pieces, so they don't caramelize as much. But it's it's okay. It's, 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 it's gonna be, it's alright. You don't have to use it. Also, uh, press the salt onto the cookie gently before you bake it to ensure that it really sticks on there. I found that 14 minutes is better than 13 minutes. At least, you know, these temperatures are times of my oven, but that gets the top of the cookie just a little bit brown. And I find that that's a better texture. And while I'm on the recipe topic, This week and next week, with the kids off of school, this is an excellent time to put them to work in the kitchen making muffins. Download my e-cookbook, or purchase the Kindle version, from the podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts. Just look for the foolproof muffins link. There's a bonus recipe in there, a muffin I concocted with a different start But it's still a muffin. It uses cream cheese as the base instead of melted butter. And it's good. Have a Merry Christmas and a great week. And I'll see you soon. Music. For the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at MattBankert.com. So, I was talking about MSG. The instructor, I don't know, remember his name, Ed Rutgers, who is very eggheady about MSG and has got a ton of papers that I can't even read. Part, part of what's interesting to me is his research seems to suggest that the MSG flu or the reaction people claim to have. From yeah. say having Maggie or accent is it, it possibly psychosomatic. Yeah, yeah. And, well, the, if, all accent. the research that's
1: come out lately. I mean, the so-called Chinese restaurant syndrome. Yes, uh, you that. know, is about. is um, yeah. It's it's uh, it doesn't exist. There's no there's no clinical trial. No one has ever been able to. Connected to the MSG from that perspective is to malign it in that it blows your taste buds out. I think you just kind of lose the capacity to to taste other things when everything is so ramped up and it's got so many flavor enhancers and you know things that they can say artificial and natural. They could say it natural flavors doesn't matter if it comes from a natural source. They could be adding you know intense chicken flavor to your broth and Mm -hmm. hydrolyzed yeast extract and all this other crap that make it super, super chickeny so that when you go and taste a real chicken broth, it doesn't taste like anything anymore. You know, so that's my my real concern is gastronomic. It's not a, you know, and then essentially they are making us addicted to food also because, you know, the other thing that these flavor enhancers do is they're designed to hit your pilot immediately with a spike and then drop off so that you think, oh, that was really good, but I want more because the, the flavor is gone, you know? Unlike most food where you've a good piece of cheese in your mouth, that flavor sits there and it just, you know,
0: the the wine is the same way because we talked about wine you get so i worked in new jersey (laughs) funny we're talking about jersey again um near hillsborough uh old york cellars as a wine pouring taster guy i know exactly where that is (laughs) as you so you know but as you as the wine washes over your tongue you get that immediate whatever the first flavor is but as you As wine ages from opening now and now from now and tomorrow versus also adding the oxygen and and getting that flavor and then, and then the behind. So that's where the observation about bitter came in. We had uh, that particular version of a, um, whatever it was. And now I've lost the name of it, but it had, oh, it was just, it finished with a nice, fabulous bitter note that I loved. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and I've I been
0: people, "Oh, wait, wait for the end," and they wait for the bitter, and they go. So unofficially, twenty-five percent of people can taste bitter, but.